Please open your Bibles to the book of James, chapter 2. This morning we'll be looking at chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. And if you're using a Bible that we've given you or you got off the back table, you can turn to page 1011 and you'll see the big number 2 there on the right half of the page. And that's where we'll begin in just a minute. Listen to God's word from James chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, While you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? And the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do commit adultery, but if you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is God's word. This passage that we just read could not be more clear. And in some ways, it fits with the caricatures we might have about the Bible. Someone in the Bible tells us about a sin and tells us why it's wrong, right? That's kind of what we think the Bible is all about. But today, as we look at at James teaching us about this sin of partiality, I hope that we'll see that even as he warns us against the sin and identifies why it's wrong, He is leading us into a life of liberty and joy in Christ. The sin James identifies here is partiality. That's not a term we really use that much, but if we wonder what he means by it, all we have to do is just keep reading because he tells us exactly what he's talking about. James tells us about this example of two visitors coming into a gathering of Christians like this one perhaps, and one of those people is dressed in fine clothes and they're wearing gold rings and the other guy is wearing filthy rags, maybe even stinking rags, maybe someone who's clearly sort of destitute. And in this scenario, the rich man is given a good seat in, a, in the gathering. He's held in a place of honor, but the poor man is kind of held at arm's distance and said, you, you stand over there or, or just sit down at my feet. At first, it seems like this situation is hypothetical, but as James goes on, you clearly see that it's not hypothetical. This really happened, or something very like it really happened. 
And in the, in the situation to which James is writing, there were these, these dynamics between rich and poor, where the, the rich were oppressive and the poor, by large, were those who were faithful. So this is a very specific situation that James is writing about, a situation in which this kind of favoritism or partiality had taken place. But before we really dive in, we should understand what James is really getting at as he identifies this issue in this gathering. James is not just giving instructions to church ushers about how to be friendly or welcoming. And this passage is not really about loving your enemies, although we know that Christ teaches us about loving our enemies. It's not primarily even about loving our next door neighbor when he has a need. Well, when James is writing about, and when he writes about partiality here, is he's writing about something that can destroy a church fellowship. See, showing partiality lies about the gospel, and it lies about the basis of a church's unity. In the example here that James gives, the Christians are saying to the rich man, we want you to feel like you belong. Because of your wealth, we want to make you feel like an important part of our community. And to the poor man, they're saying, you can stay, but don't dare think that you really belong here. You're not really one of us. Because of your poverty, you shouldn't get too comfortable. These things have no place in the community of Christ Jesus. And instead of exalting Jesus, these Christians were exalting something else. They were exalting money and status. They were making those things the governing principle of their assembly, of their church. So you see what's at stake. James takes dead aim at partiality because he wants there to be no confusion about how destructive this particular sin is for the church. He wants us to see that a church can have all of its doctrine right, but they can destroy their witness by the way they treat each other. And so in this text, we're going to see him give us three reasons that we should be vigilant against the sin of partiality. First, he's going to show us that the sin of partiality contradicts the gospel. The sin of partiality contradicts the gospel. Second, the sin of partiality is rebellion against King Jesus. It's rebellion against King Jesus. And then third, the sin of partiality brings judgment with no mercy. The sin of partiality brings judgment without mercy. The series of questions we see in verses 5 through 7 spell out how the sin of partiality contradicts the gospel. So in verse 5, James says, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Notice the emphasis there is on God's grace. God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. God here is a promise-making God. He's the God who promises salvation to those who believe. And in essence, by the way this question is framed, James is saying, think of all the poor people you know in your gathering that God has saved. Think of all these brothers and sisters from the, the lowest rungs of your community who are rich in faith. They may be poor in the eyes of the world. The world may have no, no need of them, but you have great need of them because they, they share the faith with you. 
They're vital members of your community. So partiality lies about the gospel because it says that wealth or earthly status is more important than God's grace. Commentators speculate that James's audience was favoring the rich in order to get into their good graces. And so they turned turn the church into a place for transactional relationships. They hoped that by flattering the rich when they came to the gathering, that perhaps these rich people would then help them out in some way. But this kind of favoritism destroys the church's unity. Because when we say that someone's outward appearance is what matters, we're pushing aside Christ, Christ's work in saving us and God's grace to us. We don't have to go far to think of particularly ugly examples of this kind of partiality in, in churches. My own father-in-law was graduating from seminary in the 90s, and he interviewed in a lot of small um, Presbyterian churches in Mississippi to be their pastor. And he found that he had to make a point to ask these churches whether they would admit black Christians into their membership. And sadly, some were not. This, again, is in the 1990s. These churches professed to believe the doctrines of grace. They claimed to hold to the authority of Scripture, and they confessed the Westminster Confession. And yet, their treatment of black Christians revealed that their belief in whiteness was greater than their belief in the gospel. Their doctrine was orthodox, but their lives were heretical. They confessed the truth, but lived a lie. And James wants us to see that our treatment of brothers and sisters in Christ reveals what we really believe about the gospel. Either the gospel is most important or it is not. We could frame this in terms that James has already introduced in chapter 1. We could say that showing partiality is a kind of double-mindedness. We see here in James 2 what it looks like when a church is attempting to serve God and money. Again, echoing chapter 1, a group of Christians that tries to do that should not think that they will receive anything from God. James's point gets even stronger when he reminds them of how the rich have treated them. Their partiality is not just wrong from a theological standpoint, but it's also wrong in the sense of a, of a strategy to get stuff. He says the rich oppress them and take them to court. In the beginning of chapter 5, James gets even more specific. He says the, the rich uh, defraud their employees of their wages, and they make great feasts and get fat while the workers go hungry. Here in chapter 2, he sums up the rich by saying that they blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called. So James is showing them that their standing with the rich in their community is worse than they could have imagined because the, the rich are not going to be changed by their flattery. The rich people in question here are fundamentally opposed to their savior. The blasphemy of the rich then helps us to see what the real issue here is, is here in James. James is aiming at not poverty or wealth. We know that it's, it's true that God delights in showing grace to people that the world rejects. But being poor by itself doesn't save anyone, and being rich doesn't condemn anyone. The issue is God's grace and how a person responds to the grace of God. In this case, James can make these generalizations that the poor among them love God, and the rich blaspheme 
the holy name, the good name of Christ. You see, in the church, we're supposed to see that our, our fundamental unity is with those who love Christ. Of course, this doesn't mean we are hateful to those who oppose Christ. We know that Jesus does command us to love our enemies, but that's not James's point. James is dealing with a situation where Christians were honoring the rich who hated Christ and oppressed Christians, and they were dishonoring brothers in Christ who loved Jesus, and they were doing so on the basis of their poverty. This teaching of James helps us to see a problem that we all have, and it also guides us in our treatment of others. So the problem that we all have is one that John's already uh, referred to. He read in 1 Samuel 16 that we look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. We're always going to do this, right? We're always going to size people up. We, We probably couldn't stop doing that even if we really tried. But this sizing people up goes wrong for us when we we match it up with our our prejudices, things that we already believe that are are wrong about people. And it goes even further wrong when we sort of assume that what we can see is is the sum total of all the value that person has. So worshiping Christ should teach us that we have to see with new eyes. It actually gives us hope that we can see with new eyes because God's changed our hearts. So on a very basic level, we learn to see people as those made in the image of God. So you want to think about our, our two uh, statements of faith that we, are, we recited today. This is the dignity of man, right? We, we learn to see that everyone we encounter is an image bearer of God. The poor and the rich, black and white, male and female, whatever the status is, our, our neighbors are image bearers. And, and so we love them because God has stamped value upon them that nothing can take away Even gross sin cannot remove the image of God in a person's life. And we we learn even in this that there are, because of the image of God in a person, there are wise ways we love our enemies, right? There are wise ways we learn to love the rich who oppress. Sometimes that may just be speaking the truth to them and praying for them, but there's a way we can love all people. So we learn that from worshiping Christ, when we see a neighbor, we see someone stamped with God's image. But we can go even further because if we worship Christ, we should grow in prizing our fellowship with his people. We should grow in our love for the saints. And this is a way that we always need to be growing, right? There's not a point at which we've arrived at perfectly loving all the saints because we're, we're always introduced to new saints and we're finding out new sins about the saints that we already know. But we're always to be growing in this way. Those who share our faith should become more and more precious to us. We should feel that they're worthy of our time and our attention. Our treatment of them should reflect God's treatment of them because we share in the same grace of God. So we all need to ask, is this true of me? Is this the way I see people? Do I see my neighbors as those who are image bearers? Or have I turned them into objects? Or are they just annoyances? How do you see your brothers and sisters here in the church? In which direction is the trajectory of your life pointing? Is it pointing towards growth in love for God's people? This is a good time to realize we all have different different capacities about, about being in relationships. Some of us have a lot of relationships. We're real outgoing. Some of us just have a few. 
But how could you grow, given where you are and the equipment God's given you when it comes to relationships? How could you grow in loving others? A good question to ask in relation to this is, how do I do when I fail at loving others? Am I sensitive to those times when I'm not gentle or I'm impatient or I'm, I'm quick to judge? When I, when I see those things, am I repenting and confessing? Are you at war with the roots of pride and selfishness that lead you to look down on brothers and sisters in Christ? If we are complacent about our sin in this area, then we are chipping away at the unity of the church. We're obscuring the gospel. And it reveals something that's deeply wrong with our hearts. The way we treat Christ's people is very important to Christ. You know, as, a, as elders, when we're interviewing someone for a church membership, the thing that we're keyed in on is, do they believe the gospel? That's the most important thing. That's the most important foundation of our unity. Now, we do also ask them, do they you know, agree with our confession of faith? Because that's important for church unity. But the real thing is we, we want to be unified with other Christians. That's what forms our unity here at Christ our Savior Baptist Church. You see this each week when we talk about the Lord's Supper. We highlight the unity that our union with Christ is supposed to result in for our relationships in the church. So we, we urge you to come to the table united in love with your brothers and sisters. When you come, you're supposed to examine your relationships with your, your spouse, your believing children, your brothers and sisters here within the church. Our union with Christ is supposed to manifest itself. It's supposed to show up in the way we treat each other. So James wants us to see from the start, the sin of partiality contradicts the gospel. That's the first reason why we need to be vigilant in fighting this sin. Next, he argues that the sin of partiality is rebellion against King Jesus. We see this in verses 8 through 11. He argues that partiality is against Christ's law and that it condemns you before God. Let's read those verses again, verses 8 through 11. James says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. The commentator Doug Moo argues that the phrase royal law is James' way of speaking of the whole law as interpreted and handed over to the church in the teaching of Jesus. So James calls it the royal law because it's the law handed down by our king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And James makes a kind of simple but very compelling argument here about the sin of partiality being against Christ's law. He starts by saying that if you keep Christ's command to love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. And he chooses that command because it's a, it's a summary of the law's teaching about our relationships with, with people. The next step then in his argument is that we're to see that partiality is a failure to love our neighbors. Showing partiality to some involves dishonoring those who's, who Christ has commanded us to love. So partiality is a, it's a failure of this most basic summary of Christ's law. 
Mu points out that there's kind of a parallel in verses 9 and 10. So verse 9 says, if you keep the royal law, you do well, but if you show partiality, you sin. That's what we're meant to see here. So showing partiality makes you a transgressor of the law, a lawbreaker. And James's terminology emphasizes the guilt that comes from breaking Christ's law. You can see that in verse 9. When you break the law, we're convicted by it. We stand guilty, it says in verse 10. So showing partiality is a breaking of God's law, and it makes us condemned in God's sight. The last part of James's argument emphasizes the unity of Christ's law. He says we're, we're guilty even if we only disobey it at one point. So he says we can't take a hypocritical sort of piecemeal approach to God's law. You can't file a, an a exception or ask for a variance from God. And James proves this point by going back to the Ten Commandments. He doesn't kind of choose some obscure part of the Mosaic Covenant. He, he goes for the big guys, right? Murder and adultery. He says, how ridiculous would it be to, to have someone say, look, I know I just murdered that guy, but at least I'm not like that adulterous sinner over there, right? We all know that just that's patently wrong. So you can't divide up the law. And John Calvin takes this even a step further when he observes uh, about verse 11 where it begins, for he who said that the whole law is spoken by the one God. Listen to what Calvin says. The righteousness of God as an indivisible body is contained in the law. Whosoever then transgresses one article of the law destroys as far as he can the righteousness of God. The unity of the law is rooted in the unity of God, the one godness of God. And it can't be divided up into parts any more than God can be divided up into parts. So the same God who said, love your neighbor, says, do not show partiality. Would you attempt to divide God? Would you pick and choose your approach to the law of God? All of this talk about the law may make you nervous. Are we going back to the old covenant here? Are we saying that if a Christian does not keep the law perfectly, that they're condemned? Well, we'll look at that more in a second. But it's good just to sit here and to contemplate the reality that Jesus is a king who issues commands. Our worship of Jesus is bound up in our obedience to him. So Jesus himself says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If we've been saved by Christ, we will obey him. So the question James is pressing in this part of the passage is this. Do you intend to worship your exalted king or not. He begins the chapter by telling us that Jesus is the Lord, but he is the Lord of glory. This word glory is not often ascribed to Jesus like this, and it seems to be a way of James telling us that Jesus is God. He's clothed in the, the attribute of God, God's glory. He's enthroned at the Father's right hand, and he's revealed his will, will to us. And so the church is the body of Christ. Christ is our head. We're to follow our head. Our conduct is supposed to be controlled by our king and his commands. And so to allow partiality to go unchecked in our church is equal to saying that we really don't want Jesus to be our king. To act as if we can keep some of Christ's commands but still show partiality 
is to say that Jesus himself is divided. You see how the stakes could not be higher here? To those Christians who go on mistreating Christ's people, James put the question like this. Why do you think it's okay to live in open rebellion against your king? You stand convicted before him. And if you would hide behind the fact that in some areas of your life you are obeying Jesus, you are deceiving yourself. We don't have the option of picking and choosing which commands of Christ to obey. And neither do we have the option of picking and choosing which of Christ's people to love. If we see the sin of partiality in our hearts, it's cause to repent. We can't explain it away as if it's just sort of an isolated failure. To live in open disobedience against Christ in one area is a total rejection of Christ's lordship. Brothers and sisters, this is why when we correct each other, it's, it's not right for, you, for us to respond when we're corrected. Well, you're, you're, you're acting like I'm totally evil and I'm doing all these good things over here. A correction is not meant to, to denigrate your whole witness, but it's meant to draw attention to the fact that, brother, there's an issue here. An issue that you need to address if you would follow Christ. If you know of a, an issue of unrepentant sin in your life. Christ calls you to deal radically with it, right? To cut off the offending hand, to pluck out the offending eye. We can't live with any area of open disobedience. James is putting his finger on that here with the sin of partiality. This is deadly serious. The sin of partiality is rebellion against King Jesus. Well, you think that might be enough, you know, James could kind of go on from here, but he has one more thing he wants to tell us about the sin of partiality, one more argument about why we should be vigilant against it. And we see that in verses 12 and 13. He shows us that the sin of partiality brings judgment without mercy. Let me read those two verses again for us. James writes, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy, Mercy triumphs over judgment. <clears throat> James says we should speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. The NIV translates law of liberty as the law that gives freedom. And this is a hint that James' teaching about the law here is not some sort of return to the old covenant. The law under the Mosaic covenant by itself could never set anyone free. The law simply showed us how we were enslaved to sin. But James says that for Christians, Christ's law is a law of liberty, a law that sets us free. To unpack this a little further, we need to go back to last week's passage and remember that this same language of the law of liberty uh, turned up there as well at the end of chapter 1. In that passage, James ties together the idea of the perfect law of liberty with these phrases, the implanted word and the word of truth. So in chapter 118, he said that God brought us forth by the word of truth. And then in verse 21 of chapter 1, he called his readers to receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. It's from this basis in the the gracious word of God that saves souls, that God implants, that he then calls us to go and be doers of the word and not hearers only. So this word we're supposed to do includes this this gospel pronouncement of grace and salvation. 
And it's from this that he tells us to go look into the law of liberty. And as we, as we look into the law of liberty and do it, we will be blessed. And so he's showing us that Christ's law is a perfect law of liberty to those who have been saved by the implanted word of God. What I want you to see here is that the royal law or the law of liberty is bound up with the saving work of Christ. They're not the same exactly, but you can't divide them. The law of Christ becomes a law of liberty to those who Christ has freed from the condemnation of the law. So James isn't teaching us that our hope is in our own perfect law-keeping. Instead, what he's doing is he's sort of reasoning backward from the fruit of the gospel in our lives to the gospel itself. Those who have been saved by Christ find joy in obeying their king. And they no longer define freedom in terms of just getting to do whatever pleases themselves. So once, once we are saved from sin by Jesus, once we're delivered from the bondage of sin, we come to see that true freedom means doing what pleases Christ. And so the law of Christ becomes our freedom and our joy. And this is where James's statement about mercy come in in verse 13. Judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Those who show no mercy will receive no mercy. Again, he continues to reason backward from the life to what we believe. We can actually read all his teaching about partiality in terms of judgment without mercy. So in verse 4, he says the sin of partiality turns us into judges with evil thoughts. The sin of partiality is, is judgment without mercy towards people because of their status or their ethnicity or some other identity marker. And then in verse 5, James reflects on the wonderful mercy of God. God doesn't discriminate against people because they're poor. On the, on the poor people, he's, he's poured out his, his riches, the riches of faith, and he's promised the kingdom. And then James goes on to describe the rich. The rich are those who have been completely lacking in mercy in this case. They oppress God's people. They drag them into court. They blaspheme the merciful name of God. The message of James cannot be more serious. For those who show no mercy, they will receive judgment without mercy. But again, it's not that showing mercy earns you the mercy of God. Instead, it's the case that those who have been shown mercy by God through the gospel become merciful people. Right? We love much because we've been loved much by God. We have seen firsthand mercy has triumphed over judgment in our lives through the work of Jesus Christ. And because of this, we seek to live merciful lives. The God of mercy turns us into merciful people. And it's actually because of the mercy of God that we can have confidence that God will re receive our repentance and he'll extend forgiveness to us. If you find yourself guilty of neglecting your brothers and sisters or of, of mistreating them in some way, repent and trust that God will forgive you. In this repentance, we mean that first we have to confess our sin to God. Name it specifically. And ask God to forgive you on the basis of what Jesus has done. We can confess our partiality to God. You may also have to confess your partiality to the brother or sister that you've mistreated. And ask for their forgiveness. 
That sounds horrifying, doesn't it? To be honest with someone about the ways we've maybe silently judged them. This kind of humble confession is somewhat scary to us, but we need to see here that James is proclaiming this is the law of liberty. There's freedom here. There's freedom here because when we confess our sin, we make it clear that our hope is not in what people think of us, is not in our earthly status or reputation. Our hope is in Christ himself. There is freedom here because we're saying, I'm only here because of Jesus. I'm a terrible sinner, but I've received great grace and mercy from Christ. And do you see how this transparent repentance, it's the foundation of unity in the church. It's really hard to stand over someone in a condescending way when you just confessed your sin to them and said, I I can only plead the mercy of God and ask you to forgive me. The path to freedom and joyful unity lies in repentance and faith in Christ and confessing our sin to each other. The mercy of Christ turns us into merciful people. But the absence of mercy in our actions towards others reveals that we've never known the mercy of God. It's a good time to examine yourself. What does your life reveal? When you look at your your heart and your attitude, do you see mercy? Or is it just judgment piled on top of judgment? Are you merciful to others? Or are you judgmental? Is there any mercy mixed in with your judgment? James's word here is sobering. It calls us to, to seek the mercy of God. So he's had a simple and clear point, and he's hammered it home in three ways. The sin of partiality contradicts the gospel. The sin of partiality is rebellion against King Jesus. And the sin of partiality brings judgment without mercy. If you would claim the name of Christ, the sin of partiality has no place in your life. We must root it out. If our, if our church would be the church God intends us to be, then we can't indulge or overlook any mistreatment of one another. But if we find ourselves convicted by this word this morning, the answer is not just try harder, be nicer. And the answer certainly isn't just sweeping it under the rug. The answer is to turn back to our merciful Lord. He died to take the judgment that we deserve. So look upon Christ's great mercy to you. Brothers and sisters, as we do this together, as we appeal to Christ's mercy together, we are the church God intends us to be. Because what we're saying is, the only thing that makes any difference in our lives is God's rich grace to us. The only thing that makes any difference is that God has made us rich in faith. That he's made us heirs of his kingdom, which he promised to those who love him. That's who we want to be as Christ our Savior Baptist Church. The people who are walking arm in arm, loving Christ together. That's our, our whole job as elders, is to equip you to do that work. The work of building each other up in love. So let's look to Christ. When we look to Christ, we find the joyful freedom of showing mercy to others. Let's pray. 
Our Father, we thank you that you have shown mercy to us. Because of your mercy, we are seated with Christ Jesus in the heavenly places. Father, help us if we have ever looked down upon one of your precious saints. We pray, Father, that we would be a church where we show each other mercy. We pray that we would be a church where we're transparent about our need for the gospel. Father, tear down the fronts that we put up. We ask you to exalt Jesus among us. We pray that in his mighty name. Amen.